Our thanks to those who have fed and watered us today. Appreciate it as always. And thank you so much for looking after us. Last time I was here, I asked you to pray about our responsibilities in Swansea. And uh, I just want to share part of that with you. On a Saturday, uh, when I got there, I discovered that Glenn Davis was a fellow. There are a lot of Glenn Davises in South Wales. But the particular one who was there was a fellow that I knew from another context. And he started to chat about what he felt the Lord would have him preach about. And he said, I want to preach about the prophecies that happened before the exile. And the way the Lord brought the people back to the land of Israel after being imprisoned in Babylon. And then he said, I want to talk a little about the last few prophets in the Old Testament. And I said to him, I hope you're not going to speak about Haggai, because I'm going to use Haggai as my main text for this particular, these two sessions together. And he smiled and he said, I had thought about Haggai, but for some reason or other I decided not to preach on him. And it was just interesting how the Lord brought the two messages together, the words of the previous prophets, particularly Jeremiah, and his prophecies in relation to the fact that Israel was going to be taken into exile. And then I preached a little bit in Haggai, and then Glenn Coles with a few words in Zechariah and Malachi. So it's interesting how the Lord works, and I don't doubt at all that your prayers had part to play in that. Because I was going to preach on John 3 before I went, and then felt it just leave me in the early part of the week. So thank you so much. We're going to go back and have a little brief study on the lady Rahab, who has appeared frequently in the book of Joshua. And uh, we're going to look a little bit at the few verses that finish chapter 6 of Joshua. And then I want to read elsewhere. The text won't be available on the screen, but uh, I'll read to you some of the other passages that have been brought to mind. So Joshua chapter 6, and we read from verse 22, just through to the end of the chapter. This is the fall of the walls of Jericho. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. The word actually means it went straight down into the ground. And that's borne out by what follows. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it because of their wickedness, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying <clears throat> went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent the spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, 
Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of its youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. The main part of Rahab's story is told in Joshua chapter 2. And when the spies went into Jericho to sort of sight out the place and get some sort of field for it, uh, the king heard that they were there, and the spies eventually, having gone to Rahab's house, were hid amongst the flax on the roof of her house, which was built on top of the wall of the city of Jericho. Walls that are thought to have been about 40 feet high and 25 feet thick. Possibly the strongest walls in the whole of the land of Canaan at this particular time. So she said, having hid the spies, she said to them, Look, I know that God has given you this land. And I know that the fear of God has entered into the hearts of all of us. And I want you to make me a promise. I want you to promise me that whenever the uh, city is conquered, that you will preserve me and my house, my household, um, not because of who she was, but because she recognized that God was in control of history and in control of Jericho's personal history and in control of Rahab's personal history. So they say to her, okay, we'll do that on one condition. Well, actually two conditions. The first is to demonstrate the fact that you really believe the things that we have told you to be true. I want you to make a public declaration of that. I want you to hang this scarlet cord in the window, the cord with which they were let down later on in the day. And also that only those people that you bring into your house will be saved. Only those who are in your household, but who are brought into your actual home will be saved on that day. Doesn't sound like much of a promise, does it? I don't know what Rahab thought as the Israelites marched around the city once, back to their tents, come out the next day, marched around the city again, and back to their tents. The third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. Then on the seventh day, they marched around the city again for seven times, gave a loud shout, and they entrusted to by Joshua. The trumpets were blown, and the walls of the city went straight into the ground, except for one portion. I've been thinking a lot this week about the fact that often we make our God too small. In one sense, it's an easy thing to destroy the whole of the wall. It's a lot more difficult to leave a bit of it standing, to fulfill the promise that the spies have made to Rahab. And then you come into these verses that we read at the end of Joshua chapter 6. And perhaps, Kevin, you could just bring them back up again on the screen. And let's just have a little closer look at them, if we might, for a moment or two. 
You notice that whenever this happened, when the walls went down into the ground, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. How did Joshua know that she had been spared? Further, so the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. So she had recognized that God would do as he had promised. And she had sheltered her whole family in her home. And they all come out safe. Yet only Rahab had met the spies. And only Rahab knew that the word of God was true to her. But she trusted God to fulfill his word as far as her family was concerned. And that, I think, is a huge lesson for those of us who may be believers tonight. To recognize that we bring our our whole families before the Lord. Not that they're saved because they're part of our family. But that we have a responsibility to constantly bring to them the reality of the one in whom our faith is. And I have no doubt that Rahab must have talked to her family about what was happening in this instance. But you'll notice they're placed outside the camp of Israel. Because this woman was an Amorite. And the Amorites were under sentence of death in Jericho. So they had to place her outside the camp of Israel for the reasons we thought about this morning. You remember that Achan disobeyed God and took that which had been placed under this holy ban. So she is set outside the camp of Israel at this particular time in in this story. Then they burn the whole city, everything in it, but they put the silver, gold, and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. Remember, she's still outside the camp of Israel with her family and all who belonged to her because... She hid the men Joshua had sent the spies to Jericho. And then you have this phrase. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Now how did it happen that this woman with an ungodly life now lives among the Israelites to this day? I'm going to read you from Matthew chapter 1 a section which we've referred to before. And let me just read the words. You'll remember them, I'm sure. You might not remember the lists of names, but you'll remember the the words. So Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In Luke's genealogy, he's the son of Adam. But here, because he becomes truly human, here he's the son of Abram because he's the fulfillment of the child of the promise that was given to Abram. And you shall all nations of the earth be blessed, and in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Now Abram was a great pagan. Abram had been brought up in Ur of the Chaldees, in the Babylonian background of the worship of the moon god, almost certainly Abram's background. This is what the scripture says. Abram was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, 
Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar, you know, has also got a checkered history. You can have a look at that in the middle chapters of the book of Genesis. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, spelt like our Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. So you have Tamar mentioned, who was violated by her brothers. You have Rahab mentioned, whose background was sexually impure. And then Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. And the Moabitess was a product of the ancestral relation between, between Lot and one of his daughters. That's where Moab came from. So the three women, and the only three women who are mentioned prior to the mention of Mary in the latter part of this chapter, the three women who are mentioned all have a checkered background. And they're the only three that are mentioned in relation to those who have been brought into the, and I use the biblical phrase, the commonwealth of Israel from outside positions. Tamar would have been naturally shunned. You can read her story. I think it's Genesis 34 by memory. But here, Rahab, who becomes the great-great-great-grandmother of King David, and Ruth, who of course is slightly closer to King David than that, because she was Obed's mother. And you have this remarkable juxtaposition of of folk who have absolutely no right in Israel, who had no part in their natural genealogy of being part of the purpose of God at all. But because of their exercise of faith in the God of Israel, and you remember that stated both by Rahab and by Ruth, and you find that in Ruth chapter 1, where you go, I'll go, your God will be my God. You remember that passage? And you recognize that as these dear women recognize the sovereignty of God in their lives, God in his mercy does this almost unimaginable thing. And he draws them into the direct line of the Messiah. And he who is born of Mary, the Son of God, as we've been thinking about, the one who who died for you and me on the cross, has in his genealogy... The Gentile woman, Rahab and Ruth. Not precious. Why is it why why is it God show such mercy? Well, if you can tell me afterwards why you deserve God to love you, then we'll come to some sort of understanding of it. You know, there's nothing about us that should ever draw from God his love. We are strangers. The scripture uses the phrase aliens for those who are outside the commonwealth of Israel. Totally other than that nation whom God chose to bless in Old Testament times through whom the Messiah would come. But he draws you and me into the line of the Messiah, doesn't he? When you come to faith in Christ, you're brought into the family of God. 
We become children of God. These remarkable statements that the Apostle John uses in the first chapter of his great gospel. And the mercy of God is incomprehensible. But it's enjoyable. It's a great thing to be a beneficiary of the mercy and love of God. And it all happens through faith and commitment. For Rahab, she ties a scarlet cord in the window as an indication of her faith. For Ruth, she marries into the family of Boaz, who himself is the progeny of Rahab. Boaz knew all about the grace of God. And when we meet him in the book of Ruth, we discover he's a mighty man of wealth. He's been blessed by God in that community, even though his mother was Rahab. And you have this... You know, I was quite overwhelmed as I began to reflect upon these things again. Just to to recognize, you and I have been brought into the riches of Christ. We have an inheritance which is undefiled. An inheritance that's never going to fade away. An inheritance that's never going to know the ravages of inflation. An inheritance that's absolutely secure. And it's secure forever because it's secured through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the fact that you and I have been called by God into his family. It is utterly amazing. And I don't know of what him Desmond has chosen, but I'd love us to sing Amazing Grace at the end of this service as we could, if we could. Because it just seems so great. So she's drawn into the Israelite community through her marriage to Salmon. And is brought into the light of the Messiah because of that. But the, the passage closes with a phrase I've never heard preached on. So I'm just going to touch on it brief, briefly tonight. Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. And it's the same word as is used earlier on in the chapter in relation to the things that are set apart to God's purpose. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. And if you're like me, you think to yourself, why on earth is that little fragment of scripture in here? I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings chapter 16. And we're reading probably almost 500 years after Joshua pronounces this curse on the city of Jericho. Let me read to you from 1 Kings chapter 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, I'm reading from verse 29, those of you who got your Bibles with you. Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which was to set up two golden rams, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Athbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Baal was the god of fertility, as far as the Sidonites were concerned. And it was also a a foul religion in every sense. And he began to lead the Israelites astray. So Ahab made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Now here's the verse. In Ahab's time, 
In other words, whenever all this evil was taking place, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid his foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. 500 years later. So what's the, the teaching? At the cost of his oldest, he'll begin, he'll lay the foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will raise up its gates when the walls have been finished. Most commentators feel that all of Hiel's family died from the time he began to build Jericho or rebuild Jericho to the time he finished it. And he knew about the curse because it was written in the book of Joshua. And he had remarkable background because Hiel, H-I-E-L, means God lives. So he knew that the curse was alive, if I can put it like that. From his own name, he knew that God lived. You know what Bethel means, don't you? Beth, anytime you see the word Beth, it means home or house. El, God. So here is a man whose name means God lives, and he lives in a town which is called the house of God, and he still decides he's going to rebuild Jericho. And he knows the curse, because it's written in the book of Joshua. And through the work, all of his children died. So what's the central teaching? Surely it is that God will fulfill his word. You know, we often talk, and I mentioned this this morning, we often talk about the promises of God in relation to the blessings that he promises. But the promises of God are also clear as far as the curses that he pronounces. It was just as powerful a promise, if I can express it like that, that the man who chose to rebuild Jericho would lose his family in the rebuilding of it. And God fulfilled that word. And sometimes when I'm talking to men and women, they say, well, I don't understand how a God of love will also judge the world. Surely that can't be right. But God has to keep his word. If he doesn't judge the world, then he's not God. If his word does not come true in relation to judgment as it has come true in relation to the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, then he's not God. God has to fulfill his justice just as much as express his love because he's a righteous God. And so as God says, after death, judgment, he means exactly that. And I close this evening as I began this morning with a message of great solemnity. If I don't know the Lord Jesus and I'm not sheltering in him, then I'm exposed to the wrath of God. John 3, that great chapter which has in it, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, also has in it the statement, He that believes not is condemned already. And the wrath of God abides on him. Because it's nowhere else to abide. If I don't shelter under the one who bore the wrath of God, then I'm exposed to the wrath of God.
And if I die without Christ, I'll be judged on that basis, shut out from his presence forever. Hiel thought he could do what he liked with this curse that Joshua had pronounced. But he lost his firstborn son as he laid the foundations. And as he finished, his youngest son died. We can't just choose the bits of the Bible we want to believe. We need to recognize the truth of God in all of that. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the mercy and love and grace that was shown to Rahab. And we just praise you that that dear woman from a, a foul pagan background recognized the majesty of yourself and the power that you had to preserve her and her family. And we just thank you that she trusted in you and that you drew her into the line of the Messiah. And we praise you for that. We thank you in your grace and mercy that you ever touched our lives and brought us to yourself. We thank you for the constant awareness that we have of our own unworthiness, but also of the greatness and majesty of our Saviour. We pray for those who are here tonight who are not yet Christians, that perhaps you will just help something to, to dawn in a new way and help to bring them into the light of your presence. And for those of us who think we know you, we pray that you'll help us to know you better tomorrow than we did yesterday, through Christ our Lord. Amen.